Well, Father, it's always good to be together as our church family. And uh, thank you for uh, your great throne above, where the Lord Jesus Christ sits on your right hand and he's making intercession for us. And Father, we really need prayed for today. We're a weak people. Uh, We struggle, we stammer, and we stagger. The world presses in on us, and yet you have called us to live in victory. And greater is he that is in us, the Lord Jesus, than he that is in the world. Father, thank you for the power and authority of your word, and thank you for the instruction. And this morning, as we open our Bibles and we receive instruction right from the mouth of our Lord Jesus, would you help us to apply it, to understand it, to take it in, and to allow your word to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we've gathered and in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with a question this morning. What is it that makes you happy? I'm so happy that we had lasagna for supper. I'm so happy that it snowed. And there is no school. I'm so happy that the snow is melting and spring has arrived. What makes you happy? We use that word a lot. Almost always when we use the word happy, if you stop and think about it, it has everything to do with what? It has everything to do with the circumstances of our lives and that the circumstances of our lives appeal to what I consider to be a good thing. People are cooperating. I'm happy about that. The weather is nice. I'm happy about that. You know how this works, and that's why as we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 this morning, we need to stop and begin with point number one of our message, which is the strange view of happiness that Jesus teaches. We're on the beginning of a journey in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5. And what what makes Matthews 5, 6, and 7 very interesting is that this is the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ as he sits down in an outdoor setting as a teaching rabbi. He has a, a large group of followers at this time because he's early in his earthly ministry, has been doing miracles, and he has named his disciples, and they are nearby, but... Um, The inference is is that this is a crowd of followers, and you can almost picture how it would be. As Jesus goes up to this higher part of ground and sits down, a common position for rabbis to teach and to have others sit at their feet, you could see the disciples kind of jockeying for position, wanting to sit under the spray, you know, that they would be close and touch the garment. Touch the hem of his garment. And others who've been around and are familiar are gathering in. And, and, and it's almost like concentric circles. From the committed on out to the curious. To maybe even the caustic out on the fringes. And Jesus begins to teach. We suggested last week in our introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. That 
as some Bible commentaries suggest, that it could be that Jesus was there for as long as three days teaching, speaking. It really is more of a discourse, it's more of a teaching thing than as we would understand preaching, challenging people with truth to make life decisions and change. Teaching is the transfer of information, and and this comes together in a combination of the transfer of information, in a sense Jesus is redefining and turning upside down the world of his followers, and at the same time he is calling them for life change. We don't know if his voice was quiet and steady, or if at times he stood and was passionate, But we do know that the content of this message, and that's what we have, we don't have the vocal reflection or the energy level or the decibel level, but we have the content. And though we hold God's Word sacredly in our hands, and from Genesis to Revelation it is the Word of God, and it is equally the Word of God, it is interesting, isn't it, to just kind of hear Jesus talking to us from His mouth. And He begins this series, this long discourse, with what we know as the Beatitudes. And the thing about these Beatitudes is, some people have phrased it the beautiful attitudes, is that when you stop and think about it and you ask yourself, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? You recognize that he is introducing this entire message by turning everything upside down. And in fact, as so often is true in the teaching of our Lord Jesus, that if you want to go up, you have to go down first. And that the way to go up is down, and he presents his backwards kingdom, his upside-down kingdom. Let's let's read the Beatitudes in their entirety. This week, we're not going to make it very far, but um, we will not spend an entire message on each of these Beatitudes. In fact, we may complete them next week. Introducing really only the first one this morning. Let's pick it up with the beginning of the chapter, Matthew 5. If you're new to us, um, we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, if I didn't already say that. And uh, here's what's next. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Interesting, isn't it? Let's break it down for just a minute and let's understand number one this morning uh, by looking at the definition of terms and words as he opens up this sermon uh, that Jesus is literally presenting what I call this morning, number one, a strange view of happiness. The word Beatitudes, which is not used in the text, but is what we are familiar with, this is the Beatitudes, 
comes from a Latin word that translates out into happiness or bliss. And that's a good translation in the fact that when Jesus begins to teach, it says he opened his mouth and taught them. By the way, I'm struggling to resist the temptation here of getting far off on a tangent about the power of the spoken word. We live in an image-driven world. Have you noticed that? I have a young friend who's working on a Ph.D., in communication, and it has to do with the images and the technology of our day. And as he is working on his PhD and studying the image-driven world in which we live, he is finding himself forbidding his children to watch cartoons and to have computers and to have images flying into their face all the time. One of the things that I've noticed in preaching in Africa versus the United States is that In Africa, in Malawi, where we um, just love our missionary love, that's his name, Kapesi, and the work that they're doing there, is that they hear what you're saying and they remember your words. I was thinking about that. What is that all about? I'll go back six years later and they will tell me everything that I taught in a session or in a message or in some village where the Lord worked and there was a message And I got to thinking about it is that they have not grown up filling their minds with noise and with images. In fact, they have grown up listening to words. They know how to listen. Do you know how to listen to words? It's not a mistake that God has given us his word in print. And that Jesus Christ himself is the living word. He's not the living video show. Now, I recognize that there's different eras of technology and there are benefits and blessings. And here I am well down the road that I said I wasn't going to go down. (laughs) But I want you to notice that as Jesus sat down, the greatest teacher who ever lived did not use PowerPoint. Do I have an amen? (laughs) My call to myself and to all of us is to learn to listen, to learn to hear words. What's being said? It's a powerful form of communication when words trip the theater of the mind and images are not presented already thought out for you. And the Spirit of God begins to stir your heart and truth becomes clear to you. And so Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, And right away, we have this strange view of happiness, and he uses the next word, blessed. Blessed or blessed, and it's the beginning word of every one of the Beatitudes. And here's what the word means. It means, in a a more uh, contemporary translation, it essentially means happy. Happy are you. Happy are you if you're poor in spirit. Happy are you if you mourn. Happy are you... If you are meek, happy, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so forth. It gets even more difficult when you see down at verse 10, happy are those who are persecuted. What is this all about? You need to understand that this word happy, it it has the the idea of good fortune. You are fortunate. 
You are blessed. You are, that's where the word translates out. It's, it's an idea of blissful. Homer in ancient literature, Homer's Odyssey, he translated the word, the same Greek word, he translated the word to mean a wealthy man. Somebody with great wealth. Wealthy are you. Plato translated it, one who is successful in business. Successful are you. Happy are you. Blessed are you. If. The idea of this joy, this happiness, in this idea of the Beatitudes where the word is repeated, blessed, 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 is the idea that it is a state of joy or well-being. Listen now closely. As it is presented by Christ, it is a state of joy or well-being that does not depend on circumstances. You're going to see that it's exactly the opposite. That it is a joy or a well-being that starts on the inside and moves out. It's not an external thing that moves in. It is definitely not superficial. And it has to do with a deep contentedness. Based upon the fact that one's life is right with God. Do you know that feeling? Do you know what it is to have a peace in the midst of the storm? Do you know what it is to have a contented well-being? Because all is right between you and your heavenly Father. That's a lot of what Jesus is talking about here. This happiness, this bliss, we don't use that word very often in our common language. Oh, I feel blissful. It's kind of odd. And Jesus is saying happy, contented, deep contentment is present in the one who is, and look at the next word. He said, who is poor in spirit. The word poor here needs to be understood. And the idea of this poor person, it isn't to be confused with what Luke says in Luke chapter 6 when he gives his beatitude. He leaves out the phrase in spirit. He just says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. And so some people think, all right, I've got to start giving away my wealth. I've got to be poor. And there's this theology of poverty that says that I am closer to God the poorer I get materially. That's really not true. And that's not what the Bible's teaching. So you say, okay, Pastor Van, if in Matthew it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and in Luke it says just blessed are the poor, what are we talking about here? Well, there's a principle that we use in Bible interpretation in our, we call it hermeneutics, the science of unfolding scripture, of discerning what scripture means. And it's a simple principle and it works like this. Whenever there is a comment in scripture on on the same point, we use the passage that gives the most detail to interpret the passage that has the least detail. All right, And so in this passage, Matthew gives significantly more detail than Luke. And it is safe to interpret and to understand Luke that he's talking really about the same thing that Jesus is talking about in Matthew. It is the, it is the Lucan account of what Matthew is recording for us of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, poor in spirit. Luke just left off in spirit. Blessed are the poor, are the poor in spirit. So you don't want to build automatically a theology of poverty whereby I am more spiritual if I haven't taken a bath, don't use deodorant, and don't have any money in the bank account. Because we have ample instruction and example in Scripture that some of God's greatest saints, Abraham, Moses, David, others, Job, 
were some of the wealthiest people that were actually alive on the earth. That's not to say that there's not a danger in riches, right? And Paul warns about that in 1 Timothy 6. That they will run you through like a spear. And they can ruin your life. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. So let's make sure we understand that. Blessed, happy, deeply contented are the poor in spirit. So what does he mean? This idea of the word poor, you need to understand, has the idea to shrink down, to cower, all right? To, to be down and cringing of the, the images of a person who is in total destitution, crouched in a corner. In Luke chapter 16, we don't have to go there, the exact same word, this idea of being poor. Remember the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was dressed in fine purple, Luke chapter 16. And it said that, the, that Lazarus, this poor man, sat at the bottom of his table. It's, you kind of get the picture of this wealthy guy with his big table set out with a tablecloth that hangs way down. You know what I'm, sit, I'm talking about? And you sit down in the tablecloth actually, and all of a sudden you kind of bump something with your foot and you, you don't know what, and you pick up the, you pick up the bottom of the tablecloth and underneath there's Lazarus. <laughs> like a, like a house cat. You got this poor guy underneath the rich guy's table and he's down on his bottom and down on his hands and knees and he's waiting for someone to drop an olive or something, and then he gets it and he eats it. He's cowering, he's, he's down under I don't deserve to sit up at the table. And I have nothing to offer here. I am completely wretched and poor, and so you just kind of cower down when people walk by. Okay, so now we're getting a mental image of maybe what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who are cowering down, who are huddled down in their deepest need. In their spirit. There is a word picture that I can present. I remember when I was a little boy, um, we lived in a parsonage. My dad was the pastor of the Community Bible Church in Posen, Illinois, a suburb of South Chicago. And I was probably only about five or six years old. In fact, I don't remember this happening, but I doubt I was in school. Never went to kindergarten. I'm still trying to catch up. But... um, I remember my mother telling a story. The church building was there in the parking lot and then our parsonage. And my mom would work at her sink and she could look out the window into our backyard in this little tiny bungalow rancher that they had for a parsonage there. And a boy that she recognized who would come to our Sunday school, who was a young teenage boy on a cold winter's morning, very cold in northern Illinois, came running across the empty lot into our backyard, and he was undressed except for a sweater that he had on top. His father had been beating him, and he'd run out of the house. And it was a school day, and he was... It was Everything was discombobulated and he didn't know what to do and he ran to the pastor's house up the street. And he was standing out in the yard pulling down on his sweater to cover himself and he was shivering and he was bawling. He was poor in spirit. He had nothing to offer. Everything was broken. Nothing was going right. I can't do this on my own. I need help. Blessed is the person who has lasagna for supper. I'm so happy. Blessed is the person, Jesus said, nope, who 
is poor in spirit, cowering down in the corner, completely dependent on others for sustenance, with absolutely no means of support. The next phrase that he uses is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's talk about this for just a minute. What is the kingdom of heaven? We've been hearing that phrase. John the Baptist cried out and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now when Jesus teaches, and he opens up in this great sermon on the mount, he talks about, Blessed are those who are cowering down in brokenness, this unusual form of happiness that he's talking about. Happy are you if you are broken. For yours is the, and there it is again, the kingdom of heaven. You need to know that a lot of trees have died and a lot of drums of oil, uh, of ink, have been drained dry writing about what in the world is the kingdom of heaven. Is it internal? Is the kingdom of heaven something that is on the inside of you? Is it external? Is it in the here and now or is it future? And you know that the Bible has a lot of inference for that. We believe, and I understand um, and, and take the position, that Matthew is using the phrase kingdom of heaven because he's, his primary audience is, is a Jewish audience and he does not want to say kingdom of God. He doesn't want to use the name of God. It's too sacred. And so he says the kingdom of heaven. We also are under the assumption that his audience must understand what he's talking about. Rather than go on and on about this, let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. And I think the Apostle Paul is, is referencing a lot of what Jesus is talking about here. And let me just comment on a couple things. Okay, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians comes, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1. And let's look at verse 13. He says in verse 13, the Apostle Paul, writing to believers, says, He, that's God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We have been redeemed and purchased and bought out of a, of a life of sinful darkness, we're now in what we might even say accurately is a kingdom of light. And Paul calls it the kingdom of his dear son. So what is he talking about? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Later on, he's going to talk to them in this message, and we'll see it again, and we'll see it repeatedly. He'll say, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. So I take it it's something that we can have right now, here and now. The book of Daniel especially talks about, and other prophetic passages do talk about, a kingdom that will be established where Jesus will rule and reign forever on his throne. And there is what we teach in our dispensational theology, a millennial kingdom that is coming, a thousand year period where Jesus will rule and reign on this earth. That's the time when you know you hear songs written about 
about the lion and the lamb getting along and poisonous snakes, you know, being pets. That everything's changed and Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. That's a, we would believe, a literal kingdom that is yet coming and it particularly pertains to Israel and the Jewish people and some unfulfilled promises that were made about the throne of David and how a descendant of David would one day sit on that throne and he would rule with a perfect rod of justice and that would be his kingdom and King Jesus is going to rule. I don't think that that's what, God, that that's what Matthew's talking about here. That is a legitimate form of the kingdom future. But I take this to be the, the domain that is what God has taken and redeemed out of darkness and from sin and that you are now under the rule of God through Jesus Christ. You now have, uh, it's God's rule and reign over those who submit to the leadership of Jesus Christ. That's a way to think of it. God's rule and reign over those of us who submit to the, to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, don't we say, I have a new master, right? I have a new master. I'm a citizen of another country. I'm looking forward to a new city. And that's heaven future. But I'm living now as a citizen of that new country and new city. I'm a pilgrim, we say, just passing through, right? I'm an alien and a stranger in this world, the Apostle Paul taught. What does that mean? It means that I am part of another kingdom. And I would take it that the church is, is part of that kingdom. That the, that the kingdom is an over... It's like a big tent canopy over all that belongs to God and is His. And of course, everything's under His control. But I'm under his authority and I'm living now for him and my new master. I now think a new way and I have a new heart and I have a new value system. I'm part of the kingdom of heaven. And it's a here and now thing. I'm living as a citizen of heaven now. Does that kind of make sense? So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I don't think he's saying, okay, people who are all sitting on the hillside there, if you're poor in spirit today, happy are you and blessed because someday you're going to be in this kingdom. I mean, that's true, but right in the here and now, I am part of a kingdom that God is the, the ruler of, over which he is the ruler. And Jesus is my master. And I'm living with this new value system. And as Paul, as I've just, uh, as we've said already in Colossians 1.13, that he has taken me out of the kingdom of darkness and put me in the kingdom of his son. It's the new life that is in Christ under God's authority. So there we have it. That's Jesus' strange view of happiness. Happy are you if you are poor in spirit, cowering down, nothing to offer of your own. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. I'd like us to further illustrate what this brokenness means by point number two of our message, this strange view of happiness. Let's understand it better by number two, looking at a striking view of brokenness. A striking look at brokenness. And I want you to turn to Luke 18, because we have in our Bibles an illustration of this kind of humility, this kind of brokenness. Luke chapter 18 And it begins with verse 9, and I want to contrast two kinds of people. And I want you to see as a living illustration of a person who is poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, and this is a parable that Jesus tells. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. All right, let's, let's read with understanding here and let's be careful to not waste the opportunity. Are you trusting this morning in your own self-righteousness? We need to be very clear this morning that God is not impressed with human self-righteousness. And there is a very common misconception about God. One is, is that you can work personal deals with him. You know, me and God, we have this understanding. Well, where'd you come up with that? I don't know, I just made it up. Well, you better watch out, okay? Because God told us what he thinks right here in the book. Another part of that mindset is that, you know, God and I work a deal, and here's how it is, is that I do good works, you know, and there's like the big scale. We've talked about this many times. The big scale where your good works are piled up on one side, and your bad works and all the dumb things you ever did and your disobedience and your white lies and whatever naughty things you did. And, but you're trying to be good and you got all the bad stuff on this side of the scale, all the good stuff on this side of the scale. And someday you're going to stand before God and He's going to pile up all your good stuff and He's going to pile up all your bad stuff and you're going to hold your breath and squint your eyes a little bit and the thing's going to teeter back and forth a little bit and all of a sudden it's finally going to stop and your good work you're going to outweigh your bad works and you're going to say, yes! We kind of think that way. Good works should be rewarded. The Bible is really clear that our righteousnesses don't carry weight with God. In fact, in the Old Testament, he made very clear, he said that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And I'm telling you, in the Hebrew language, it's the filthiest of the filthiest kind of hygienic rags. It's awful. And so it's like God's holiness is so great and our sinfulness is so dirty that even if we can muster up something good, God's just not impressed with it. It's not good enough. It's just not pure. It's just not good. And so that's a really faulty mindset to fall into. But that's what this guy, this righteous guy, back in Luke 18, verse 9, he tells this parable uh, and He's talking to people who are trusting their own righteousness. I worry that I preach week in and week out to some who might be trusting your own righteousness. That you're too good for God to condemn. That you just do too much too good and God will be impressed at least a little bit. He will not. You can't keep the law. And if you've broken the law in one place, you've broken it completely. The chain is apart. And so you need someone to keep the law for you. That's Jesus Christ. You need someone to come in at the nick of time to rush into the courtroom before the death penalty comes down and the gavel falls. And your, your, your intercessor comes running in and says, Hold it, judge. It's all on me. All of his guilt comes over to me. And I'll go pay the death penalty. And Jesus hangs on the cross. And that's the substitutionary work of Christ that we talk about all the time. 
And so you don't walk around with this attitude like I've got it together and I have a righteousness. I just wanted to emphasize that this morning. We need Jesus who substituted in. And your righteousness doesn't cut it, but His does. And He'll give you His righteousness if you just take it as a free gift. Because it's by grace that we're saved through faith. Not of our own works, lest anybody should be able to boast that they got it together. You can't do that. But only by faith receiving the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's why we talk about this all the time. Let's get on with the story here. And he says, he was talking to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Isn't that what happens to self-righteous people? They always look down their nose at people. And that's what this guy does. Look what he says. This is a parable, okay? Jesus is telling a story to illustrate a truth. Verse 10, Luke 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. That's a a religious leader, a person who studied the Old Testament law and convinced himself that he kept the law. He was self-righteous. And the other was a tax collector. That's a despised person in this society. It's a person who was known for their cheating, their lying, their cutthroat business tactics, their unethical activities. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners. See, he sees the tax collector and he's talking about what he does. I'm glad I'm not like those other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And you can almost see him pointing at the guy. It's a crazy story. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see, Jesus is telling a parable, but you know how Jesus does. He, he just says out loud what those guys are afraid to act out. But it's what's in their hearts, and so they're like getting... The tax collector, though, look. Standing far off, verse 13, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In this story, the first part of the story, we have the obvious disparity between the rich man and the tax collector, the self-righteous man and the man who, who was totally down on himself. We recognize and are told in verse 13, we recognize his genuine humility. But the tax collector standing far wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. What's he thinking? I am ashamed of myself. I don't belong in the presence of God. I am a dirty, rotten sinner. But I want you to see that Jesus said this humility is a necessary quality. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Why? Because if you come to God, you have to come to God in brokenness. Brokenness is the essential quality of coming to God to experience true happiness. Now back to Matthew chapter 5, and let's just shut it down here. Do you understand what Jesus is saying now? People are sitting around. 
They think they understand, and they have a worldview. Everybody has a worldview. They think they understand the key to happiness. And many of them have bought into, no doubt, the system of the world, just like we have. You see, this is a very unnatural system. For us, we want to pound our chest, not in grief and despair, but pound our chest because we just scored. Because I'm the man. And I just got it. I won. I'm, I, I did it. Better than the rest. Why did you even come in this floor here? Get out of here. Get out of my house. I'm, I'm the man. And it's the American way. And Jesus says, listen, everybody. Blessed, happy, deeply contented, outside of external circumstances are you. If you are poor, that is, cowered down in the corner with nothing to offer but complete despair in your spirit. Why would Jesus say that's a happy person? Let's go back to the rich, the rich Pharisee and the grieving tax collector. Which one would you rather be? Guy who wakes up on the resurrection morning, condemned to an eternal fate? Screaming all the way down the shoe to hell? Boasting about their good works that are nothing? Or the tax collector who beat his breast and recognized and realized, I am nothing and now I can come into the presence of God who will bless me and give me everything. That's why later in the passage, Jesus is going to say, why are you worried about what you you wear and what you eat? I'll take care of you. The Pharisee would never allow that. I'll take care of myself. She's talking about people who live under the domain of Christ have come to God in complete humility and brokenness. The reason this is so important and the reason it's first on the list is because you can't do the rest. A person who is not broken in spirit will never mourn the next one. A person who is not broken in spirit will not be meek. A person who is not broken in spirit will never hunger and thirst for righteousness. A person who is not broken in spirit will never be merciful. A person who is not broken in spirit will never be pure. And so on it goes. All of the rest of the Beatitudes are built on this quality. It's the entry point to the kingdom, being humble before Almighty God. Is that you? If you come to God, you don't come boasting. You don't come pointing at other people and saying, I'm better than they are. You come in complete, utter brokenness. And you're going to find out in that upside-down world that that ends up being the key to true happiness. It's remarkable. Let's bow in prayer. I'm going to close in prayer in just a second, but before I do, will you examine yourself? Who are you the most like? The self-righteous Pharisee or the broken down, pitiful tax collector? Have you come to the narrow gate yet? The wide road is filled with proud and boasting people. The people who get into the kingdom are the people who recognize their sinfulness and who are broken in spirit, poor. And in your poverty, then you become rich. Then all of a sudden, all of the riches of Christ Jesus are yours. And all you gave up for was the the hollow shell of your own earthly domain and false puffed up self and riches. Trade it in in humility. 
for the riches that are in Christ. Right now could be your moment of entering the kingdom. You could come to Christ right now by just admitting your need, admitting your sinfulness. You say something like this in your mind, in your heart. This is what you're thinking. Oh, God, I recognize today that my sin is an offense to you. And I recognize that I can do nothing to save myself. In fact, I just cower down in brokenness before you. And then Jesus comes, gives you his righteousness. All that is in Christ is yours, and God will save you, he'll make you his child. And let me tell you, he takes care of his children and his family. And you're part of the kingdom of heaven. A whole new way of living, a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of acting. Today, will you cry out to God in brokenness and ask for forgiveness of sin and receive a free gift of the righteousness of Christ? Follow after Jesus. Father, teach us what it is to go down, to go up. To recognize that true happiness and joy and fulfillment and contentment begins with utter brokenness before you. Teach us and grow us Conform us to the image of your Son. Work in hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.